Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, I talk with Wesley Morris from the New York Times about the power of a good cry. I'm here for those tears. I'm here to understand what those tears are doing. You know, I'm here to ask the question, you know, why are you crying? Plus, Pachinko author Min Jin Lee talks about her philosophy as a writer. Somewhere along the line, I've decided that somehow telling stories, either in fiction or in nonfiction, we can approach a new reality. But first, let's do some decompressing after the week that was. With us this week, we have Nyla Boodoo, the host of the Axios Today podcast. Nyla, welcome back. Hello. Also here is Vulture TV critic Catherine Van Arendonk. Catherine, great to have you. Hello. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I want to start this week with the fact that mask mandates are lifting across the country. I think this is a really confusing one, obviously. Um, They are no longer required here in Chicago. This is something that I'm pretty conflicted about. Now, I want to be clear, none of us is a public health professional, but I'm really curious how each of you is personally navigating this moment. Catherine, I'm especially interested to check in with you. You have a couple kids. Are they vaccinatable? So I have a I have an almost eight year old and a four year old. So my almost eight year old is my four year old can't be yet. I, too, am conflicted. I I certainly do not share some of the sentiment that I have seen going around that, like, you know, it's pretty much over and like we need to learn to live with it. I'm not a learn to live with it back to normal person. (laughs) My glass is usually half empty, if I'm going to be honest. At the same time, um, I live, I am fortunate enough to live in a community that is pretty fully vaccinated, uh, although the rate is lower among young kids than I want it to be. Uh, My kids do have to wear a mask for like most of their waking weekday hours, which is miserable. And at the same time, they have to take those masks off in school for lunchtime and snack time. And like I have a four-year-old. She's in a class with three-year-olds. How much are those masks actually doing anyhow? They have nap time where they all take the masks off and then suck their thumbs on adorable mats next to each other. Like if they were going to get COVID from each other, it's going to happen anyhow. I don't know. I, I don't feel great. But I don't feel terrible. I This is where I am. Yeah, right. Well, and I think so much, I don't know, like I think a lot about the phrase decision fatigue, which just is so resonant with me these days. Nyla, where are you on this like exhaustion spectrum? Yeah, I feel like on the one hand, there's a lot of me that's just done. Like I feel like, but I also say that from the luxury of someone who you know, does not have young children. So I think it's just kind of this weird in-between world where I'm just sort of just kind of like 
what am I comfortable with? What are the people around me comfortable with? And I feel like that's the only thing I can focus on because I don't have the energy for anything else. Hmm. I have coworkers who have COVID right now. And just talking to them, like, about how hard that is, like, is also a reminder that this is not gone. Yeah. God, that makes sense. Well, I hope they're all okay. Yeah. I'm like, sometimes I'm like, if I'm having ice cream for dinner, I'm having ice cream for dinner. (laughs) Yeah. Good for you. There's some protein in there or something. It's fine. (laughs) So our next segment on the show is with New York Times critic Wesley Morris. He recently wrote a really lovely piece about crying and grief and, and about how impactful it can be to cry, especially in a movie theater or even like on the couch at home. But it just got me wondering what the last TV show or movie was that made you cry. Um, Catherine, since you're the professional in this arena, (laughs) um, what do you think? What's the last one that was just like waterworks for you? This was a very easy question for me because (laughs) I spent a lot of time uh, in December and January watching and writing about and talking to people about Station Eleven, the show on HBO. Yes, that was mine too. Yeah. If for anyone who is not familiar, the general uh, premise of that, it's based on a novel by Emily St. John Mandel. And the premise of both the novel and the television show is that there is a terrible global viral pandemic. It kills the vast majority of the human population. And the show is about sort of a particular group of actors, Shakespearean actors who are traveling around the Midwest 20 years later. And that show just messes me up (laughs) there. I cannot, I can't tell you what the scene is that truly wrecked me because it is in the finale. It is not something I want to spoil for people. And even if you have read the novel, The show is enough of an adaptation that it, for me, it is the absolutely perfect level of adaptation, which is that it retains so much of the feeling of the original work, but is wholly its own thing. And here's the thing, because I was writing about it, and then my husband, I watched it again later with my husband. I had watched it earlier in screeners. And... I was like, I can watch it again now. It'll be fine. I won't cry this time. And it was worse. It was so much worse. And that's on me. That's on me for not seeing that one coming. But yeah, what can I say? Amazing. What about you, Nyla? Do you remember last time you cried watching something? Yes. First of all, Catherine, can I just say you are such a professional and I am such in awe of you because... I have not yet seen Station Eleven. I'm behind, and it's one of the series I really mm. want to see. And I, you just did that so masterfully without any spoilers. Know, right? So I really appreciate <laughs> Yay! that. Thank you. I feel like this is like a good time for me to like publicly confess that I cry a lot. Oh, I cry when I read trashy romance novels on planes. <laughs> oh, so it's on terrible. Planes? Yes, planes are where you cry the most. Yeah. I was watching, um, is it Lion? Is that the movie about the street kids and with Dev Patel when he, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So I was crying so hard on a plane watching that, that the guy next to me, a complete stranger, like put his arm around me and was like, (laughs) and I was like, I'm like the street kids in India. And he was like, I know I'm watching your screen. It's rough, man. It's rough. (laughs) (laughs) 
So before I let y'all go, I was curious if you have any recommendations for people to to do or watch or read or think about this weekend. Catherine, you have been tweeting very intensely about severance. So I kind of assume that's what you might recommend. But of course, it's up to you. Yeah, buddy. Let's talk about severance. (laughs) So this is a show on Apple TV Plus. I know very little about it except that Adam Scott is in it, which means I'm all in. I mean, that's kind of all I need to know. Yeah, except... And I, I'm going to say this, it's going to sound really bad, but I mean it nicely. They okay. make him pretty ugly in this on purpose, on purpose. So the I was trying to figure out how to describe what severance is. And it is like Lost plus Squid Game plus Mad Men. It is like, what? What does that even mean? I know, right? <laughs> How could you possibly combine those things? And yet, I think Severance is lost as my first reference because it is more like the feeling of that incredibly addictive puzzle box mystery, more like that lost thing than any of the dozens of lost knockoffs that then happened in the like 20 years after that show. The Hmm. general premise, which you learn very quickly in the first episode, is that um, a company, a mysterious corporation, has invented a procedure where you can sever your work self from your home life self, which means that you get in an elevator, you go up the elevator or down the elevator, some transformation happens via a chip in your brain, and you no longer remember anything about your home life. And then when you get back in the elevator at the end of your work day, you have no idea you are completely different person than that work self. Wow. My husband and I are not talk at the tv people and i am telling you by the end of this season we were like screaming at the television like what that can't be the oh my god but it is also funny like it has that madman kind of wry um Hmm. disillusioned like workplace feeling it is also so visually striking the props are extremely disorienting and distinct in a squid gamey kind of way and it has that big social commentary element to it i am obsessed with it i think everyone needs to watch it i think the finale is going to be one of those like everyone's talking about it kinds of things and and One of my very favorite things is when a TV show clearly builds in its own finale, like, menu, and because there's, like, fun food items on the show. And I am (laughs) just hoping that a lot of people have, like, melon party severance finale events for themselves. We all deserve it. Severance. I'm telling you. You sold it. I'm super curious about that now. (laughs) Um, Nyla, what do you think? What do you recommend this weekend? Well, I'm like completely obsessed with Yellowstone. I will talk to anybody about it at any time if anyone has questions as to why I think it is so great. I came very late to it, obviously, because like I know it's like the most popular show in the world or whatever. But (laughs) um, it's so crazy. Like it's so crazy emotional. Um, It's like it's like a mafia show, like in the in the Wild West with like this beautiful picturesque setting that makes me want to go to Montana and the other thing that I find fascinating about it is I think it's such an interesting depiction of Native American life and culture, both in this show in present day and then in 1883. And I feel like they've done a really careful job of being authentic about those portrayals. And I think that's such an interesting thing to see that I don't feel like you see very often. 
Okay, well, Nyla, Catherine, thank you both so much. This was such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for inviting me back. Our next guest is Wesley Morris. He's a critic at large for The New York Times, and he recently wrote an article called The Power of a Good Cry. In it, he explores, as we mentioned, the glorious catharsis of sobbing alone together in a movie theater, but also the political impact of performative tears and the fact that so many of us have been deprived of communal grief during the pandemic. Wesley, welcome to Nerdette. Wow, that was a great summary of a thing that oh, I could never have summarized quite so you. concisely. <laughs> That was fantastic. I really appreciate that. I could not have done that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a really beautiful piece. And it's, you know, I mean, you you do a lot in it, right? Like you're, you know, you talk about cry faces of all these different actors and stuff, but you also share so much of your own personal experience. It's it's a beautiful piece. Thank you. I, thank you for writing thank you, it. Thank you. Thank you. So you you start by talking about ET. You went to a theater with your mom. You were how old were you? Uh, like six, I was six. Maybe? I was six. Okay. And you talk about how deeply this film touched you and that like you sobbed, but not necessarily in a like, I'm so sad, I'm destroyed kind of way. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, can you describe that feeling? Um, I think I was, cry I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I was doing the sort of crying that was voluble. I just remember having a real intense response to the idea that this creature who came from another planet um, and was like, you know, invited into this family would then be taken away. I think what I was really going through personally uh, in that moment was the idea that I could be taken away from my family. Uh, yeah. I don't believe in you all my life. Every day. E.T. I was a wreck. It got you. That's so fascinating. I remember having, it's a little different, but kind of a similar experience watching The Lion King. Mm -hmm. When I was a little older, I was in maybe like fourth or fifth grade. Okay, okay. And our little tabby cat had just gotten hit by a car. Oh, wow. And so that whole like stampede scene uh -huh. like fucked me up. Uh -huh. Like uh -huh. it just was like, and you know, I think that's a little different than what you're talking about just because it was more based on like recent grief I had experienced, but it was still just, it is fascinating to remember those moments of being in a theater and just like losing it, you know, just being so overwhelmed with feeling. It's intense when you're a little kid. Yeah, I, I think there's something about being a child and experiencing big emotions like that. Yeah. That you don't have any control over that, you know, it's not like it's not like it's not like some child crying where you did a thing that's wrong or you're in physical pain. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I or you just really need a nap <laughs> or, or you just yeah. Or you're hungry. Right. Yeah, um, exactly. This is the thing where like I was taken to the movies and it was supposed to be a pleasurable experience. Why am <laughs> right, I sitting right. here crying? What am I crying about? Um, but yeah, there is something about being a kid and experiencing like emotions that you've had, but in this completely new context. I don't remember yeah. crying in a movie before that. Um, huh, yeah, but that was the beginning of, of a long relationship with crying in movie theaters. Hmm. I love the idea of like big emotions, like capital B, capital E, because yes, yes. I think that encapsulates so much about experiencing. And like, I don't know, I think about it 
with uh, Station Eleven, which is the last time I watched something on TV mm-hmm, and cried. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, that first episode, like I didn't it wasn't I mean, it was sadness and stress and all of those things. But it was also just like survival and endurance and, you know, figuring out how to keep existing that I just found so profound. And so it wasn't necessarily sadness at all. It was just a really big emotion. Yeah. You know, I think there's something about with art, the way that, you know, the, the, the numerous lanes or, or, or arteries by which art can, can get you. Yes. But particularly crying in tears and, and you know, that particular big emotion, there's sometimes you know it's going to happen. Like, for instance, for me, my Station Eleven um, was Coda, which I, you know, I just watched mm. for the first time last night. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if you've seen this movie. I haven't. I've heard, It's on Apple TV, it's right? It's on Apple TV. I, yes. listen, I'm, I'm, I ain't too proud to say I love... <laughs> This movie, the the degree to which you know what the movie is going to do to you, I can't find a flaw in the way this movie operates to, to get you to that moment where you cry. For anybody who doesn't know, this movie is about a family in, in a fishing community in Massachusetts, and uh, it's focused on this family, three of whose members are hearing impaired, and one of the kids there's two kids a daughter and a son she has hearing and she's been Mm -hmm. their interpreter this whole time um Mm -hmm. so the deaf family um has basically been leaning on her in a way that she becomes aware of as she integrates herself more in this uh choir there are plenty of pretty voices with nothing to say do you have something to say i think so then I'll see you in class. So there becomes this tension between the like the tiny little community of their deaf family and her insistence that they try to get out and like be a part of the world. Well, and what a like teenager instinct too, right? Yes, to be like, yes, I'm going to get yes. as far away from here yes. as I possibly can. Yeah. It's just a, an old ass story. And that it doesn't matter because you've never seen it this way before. And the, the, there's a truth to it. Like whatever is true is true. And there's something about the truth of this movie that just really got to me. And, you know, a melodrama, I, I understand the science of how melodrama works. So I knew what the right. movie was going to do. I knew what the, what the thing that was going to make me cry was going to be. And sure enough, when it happens, I just, you know, I just wept. I just wept. I might start That's crying so... now because I just watched it yesterday. <laughs> oh, Wesley. That's so fascinating because, like, I feel like even watching that trailer, I was like, oh, this looks a little yes. emotionally manipulative. Yes. Yes. You know, yes. like 100%. sometimes, like, you know, when I think about even something like This Is Us, which I, like, could not do. It was just like, no, nope, like, they're they're pulling these heartstrings too hard. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I see what's happening mm-hmm. and I don't like mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But, like, I was all in on Parenthood. And that's the show that, like, Vulture literally did cry caps on <laughs> because you were going to cry in every episode. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, I struggle with being manipulated to cry by, right. by art. Um, sometimes I'm okay with it. Like in Coda, for instance, I don't feel like I'm being manipulated. Right. It seems like it worked. You're right. I feel like this is about people connecting to each other and finding new ways to communicate. And I think it's about people. I mean, I don't know. I hate to sound like a press kit on this, but like, (laughs) I think there's something about finding, finding your voice. 
Um, yes. And, finding, and feeling seen. Yes. And, you know, yeah. there's something about the familiarity of the formula that this movie is working with. It does nothing to deviate from the actual structural formula. The difference, though, is that the way you're just watching people that you that you just like. Well, good job selling Coda to us. Uh, thank you very much. Sure. So something else you mentioned in this piece, which I think is really fascinating, is how we respond to other people's tears, especially people who cry like on a public platform. Because, you know, there can be tears that you empathize with and bring you there with that person. But then there are also tears that can be completely alien. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And yes. there's so much around like the context and all of, you know, you mentioned like Kyle Rittenhouse and Kim Potter, who's the police officer who says she accidentally shot Dante, right? Like, oh, it's so they can be so loaded and they mm-hmm. can feel distinctly manipulative, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm here for those tears. I'm here yeah. to understand what those tears are doing. Um, to try to understand what um, what's being communicated by them. You know, I'm here to ask the question, you know, why are you crying? I think there is something behind tears that even might seem intended to manipulate given the circumstances. Um, you know, were those tears, if we're talking about Kyle Rittenhouse and, and Kimberly Potter, like, mm-hmm. were those tears for the jury? Um, were those stress tears? Were those like tears of actual remorse? I don't want to conflate them because I think that both people were doing different things in their crying as well. Sure, sure. Um, you know, Kimberly Potter, she'd been crying the whole time. She'd been crying on the scene of the incident. <sighs> That's not yeah. to exonerate her, which I think I literally say in the piece. I'm not here to exonerate yeah. any of these people. I'm not a judge. I'm not a jury. I'm just a person who's watching life unfold. So it, it's a really complicated set of circumstances that come up around these emotions um but i think it's worth trying to understand unpack and 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 work through them then to just dismiss them out of hand yeah well i think also because dismissing them is partly what like i think humans at their worst are really good at doing and that's such a huge fucking bummer yeah i don't even know if it's us at our worst i think it's us at our busiest our least tolerant Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah So you talk about how crying is uniquely human, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but that also at some of our most like intensely feeling moments, it can feel deeply animalistic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, as I mentioned, you also talk about the fact that like we're not gathering to hold our grief in the way that we used to be able to. And it made me wonder, like, do you think we should all be like howling at the moon or something? Yes. You know what I mean? I do. Right. I do. I mean, and, you know, I wrote this before, you know, president nutbag went over and like decided to invade a country that wasn't doing anything to him the thing that was on my mind for a lot of writing that piece was was just the sounds of grieving mothers in countries throughout the middle east Mm. i was thinking about afghanistan um i was thinking about you know syria and it's just such a like unbridled sound of just utter rage anger confusion and you know it is happening in all parts of the world all the time you know and Mm -hmm. i think you know when you asked me before about you know what what it what it might be easier to do basically that it's like it's inhuman to sort of look away from that i mean i i agree like i i up to a point but i also you know like that feels like walls to me it's a closed fist not an open palm Mm -hmm. you know but i think that you know i also think it's really human to just 
put up the wall to in order to keep going. Sure. 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 Um, yeah. And there's no, you're not, you're not. Wrong. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's something about, you know, the point at which if this invasion in Ukraine, this war goes on for long enough. I think, you know, it'll be interesting to just watch it like drift down the front pages. Yeah. You know, it'll be interesting to hear it not be the first or second thing people talk about when they gather, like, for dinner. Because right now, I mean, it's like the first thing that comes up when I go to dinner. Yeah. I mean, it's just wild to me this is all happening during a pandemic, too. (laughs) You know? It's, yeah, yeah, mindfuck is the terminology I keep using. (laughs) Yeah, I mean. It's just like, what is happening? And I think that this idea of communal grief is a useful one. It's not a thing that normally happens in this country. We don't like, it's not like we gather every year to like. No, we're not good to, at it. To, no, to cry we're never and good grieve. Right. Did you find some catharsis in getting this piece out in the world too at all? Um, no, but I, I would say that I wanted to try to make a case for why other people should be, should be in like better in touch with their emotions. I don't know if you've experienced this. Yeah. I have been like being sent. And have seen online people just literally saying, I feel like I need to cry. I cried today. Or, you know, they post something on Instagram, which is just like an illustration of an umbrella and a bunch of rain. And it's like, this is me today. Yeah. And I mean, I'll only speak about the U.S. And there's something shameful in this country, like when it comes to the like expression, the sort of free expression of that particular emotion. And it's sort of like who's here for that and who's not here for that. And I think there's a sense that people aren't here for big emotion right now, which is crazy because this is the time for big emotion. Yeah. Yeah. This is a huge emotion time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously, Wesley, thank you very much. This was such a pleasure. This was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Wesley Morris, his recent piece for the New York Times is called The Power of a Good Cry. In just a minute, we're going to do something a little different and listen to someone else interview someone else. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Our next segment is a little different from usual. We are going to share part of a great interview that was recently on the new Well-Read Black Girl podcast. Now, you may already know Glory Adams. She is fabulous. She started a book club called Well-Read Black Girl back in 2015. And now she has this podcast. On the show, Glory has conversations with authors of color about the art, craft, and power of the written word. She recently sat down with Min Jin Lee, who's the author of one of my favorite books, Pachinko. Min talks about how reading can radicalize young people in a good way and how through storytelling we can approach a new reality by creating a version of the world we want to see. Here's a little taste of the conversation. 
You're not only a, a phenomenal writer, you're also an incredible lawyer as well. And your trajectory has just had so many unconventional turns. Um, and you, But can we start at the beginning on how you even decided to write the story, how you even changed from being a lawyer to being a writer? What was that process like for you? Oh, gosh, I was... I was 25. I was 20. No, I'm sorry. I was 25 when I was really unhappy as a lawyer. So I was a lawyer for one year. Wow. And then okay. 26, I was still working really hard as a lawyer. <laughs> and then one day I got a really super hard assignment after finishing another super hard assignment. I had billed 300 hours in the office in a month. Mm-hmm. That means that you never, ever, ever go home. So I would go to work seven days a week. And then on Sunday morning, I would go to church and then I'd go right back to work. And Mm -hmm. I thought, this is insane. And then after I finished this assignment, the partner said to me, oh, you have another one. And then I just said, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I was not prepared to quit, Glory. I was not prepared to quit. And then I wrote my first novel, which got rejected everywhere. I wrote a second novel, which was a precursor to Pachinko. And then I wrote another novel, which became Free Food for Millionaires, which I published in 2007. So I quit in 1996, no, no, mm-hmm. 1995. Mm-hmm. And then I published in 2007, which means it took 12 years to publish a book. So when I seem grateful to have published two books, <laughs> it comes out of the space of, it takes longer for us. It just takes longer for us. And I don't care if anybody wants to contradict me. It takes longer for women. It takes longer for women of color. It takes longer for people of color and women of color and white women. It just, it takes longer if you don't have connections, Mm -hmm. if you don't have powerful friends and it's fine. You just keep going. You just keep going. Mm -hmm. But what motivated me to write Pachinko, which is my second book, was a story that I heard in college and I carried that with me. Yeah, I I love the first line of Pachinko. History has failed us, but no matter. And I'm thinking so much of the present moment and the work that you do as, I mean, would you call yourself a historian? Do you feel like you sit and at that seat as a literary historian? Oh, golly. You know, that's a real honorific for me because... I have so much respect for history and for historians, but I think real historians, they are hampered and circumscribed by trying to literally document every single thing they want to say. I try to approach it like a journalist, historian, sociologist, anthropologist, and a little bit like a legal person Mm -hmm. because I'm so pissed about everything Like, I'm so angry about everything around the world because I'm so disappointed. People don't think I'm an angry person when they meet me, but inside I'm pissed. I just want you to know that behind this smile, I'm really angry because I think things are so unfair. I think things are so unfair. And I think it's because I'm so attached to fairness for the world, for everybody, that even when I'm really happy, there's a part of me that feels so heartbroken about the fact that there's so much poverty. And I'm also really upset about how people get away with shit and how things are so unfairly done. And I'm trying to figure out, well, how does my work as a writer approach that? What can yeah. I do to sort sort of create change? And somewhere along the line, I've decided that somehow telling stories, either in fiction or in nonfiction, we can approach a new reality. 
So even though I'm writing history for my second book, in a way, I'm actually creating a new version of the world that I want. That was Glory Adam of the Well-Read Black Girl podcast talking with author Min Jin Lee. You can check out the full episode and more from Well-Read Black Girl wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, Glory was actually recently on one of our book club episodes too discussing Gwen E. Kirby's fabulously strange shit Cassandra saw. You can check that out too. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with an episode next Friday. In the meantime, you can keep up with us on the interwebs. We have a pretty great little Facebook group. It is called Nerdette Headquarters. It's a super fun place to share whatever crafts you're working on, find friends to unpack the latest episode you're obsessed with, and ask for reading recommendations. You can join the group at facebook.com slash groups slash Nerdette HQ. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. Our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. We will see you next Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.